Well, the kettle is on, and we are here to discuss the Chronicles of Narnia in Chronically Narnia. Book One, The Magician's Nephew, Chapter One, The Wrong Door. This is a story about something that happened long ago when your grandfather was a child. It is a very important story because it shows how all the comings and goings between our world and the land of Narnia first began. Hello and welcome to the first inaugural episode of Chronicling colon, Narnia, a podcast where we're going to go through the entire series of Chronicles of Narnia chapter by chapter and analyze them in a way that they were never meant to be critically analyzed. Uh, because we are 30-something adults reading children's literature, and we're going to pick it apart for all that it's worth. Here, here. I'm here with my co-host. Polly Plummer, also known as Kristen. And I am um, Dickory. What is my name? Diggory. Diggory. I'm not Dickory. I am Diggory. (laughs) We don't even know his last name yet. We are recording from... uh, hidden crawl space in Polly's the attic, attic. Of, of Polly's attic. Let's let's get started. So we are talking about chapter one of The Magician's Nephew. We're reading them in chronological order, which from a certain perspective is... Which is the HarperCollins formatting. There's actually three different chronologies for Narnia or reading mm-hmm. patterns. They were written in one order. Mm-hmm. They were published in another order. Uh-huh. And then they have a chronology internally of the events that happened in Narnia, which is a third separate chronology. And I know that it's wrong, but that's the order that we're going to be reading them in. Mm-hmm. Mostly because of the fact that uh, Chris here has, uh, as his name actually is, Chris has read Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the proper book one. Yes. Um, and that's about it. And that was many years ago, and I don't remember anything about it. And I have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe about three times. And I've read every other book in the series only once. And it's probably been 15 years since I touched them. So when I'm going into The Magician's Nephew, I have very little memory about the events of the book. So... In order to help us stimulate conversation and have a somewhat equal footing uh, when it comes to the topic at hand. So we decided to start with The Magician's Nephew, mostly because we both have familiarity with the world of Narnia. And we wanted to start in a place where we both have a similar level of knowledge and that we're coming in at a similar level. So anyway, we're talking about chapter one. Chapter one, uh, the, the, the chapter of the book that damaged my understanding of Sherlock Holmes' fictionality. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, you shouldn't be. You didn't write it. I did not. You also didn't make me read it. This was entirely my choice. Correct. This chapter is called The Wrong Door. Plot spoilers! Uh, there was a significant lack of doors in this chapter overall, I feel like, but... Yeah, but also, like, a key plot element. Like, if you actually paid attention to chapter titles, you would know from the moment they decided to go into the crawl space that they were going to end up 
going through the wrong door. That's accurate. I just made that connection just now. Just now. Yeah. See, I made it while I was trying to pick my sentences for my summary. Okay. So that's a great segue. So the first uh, segment of this experimental thing that we're doing is, uh, is deconstructing the chapter, much like how some fancy New York restaurant might deconstruct a hamburger and charge $50 for like a bunch of wheat and, you know, a speaker that plays mooing sounds at you while you're eating uh, that sit on a plate. Would they just bring it out on a piece of like AstroTurf? That makes more sense. Um, so we're going to deconstruct the chapter and we've each picked a selection of sentences that we feel like uh, kind of encapsulates what the chapter's all about. Polly, would you like to start? All right. Sentence one. That was how Polly and Diggory got to know one another. And as it was just the beginning of the summer holidays and neither of them was going to the sea that year, they met nearly every day. Sentence two. <laughs> we could get into other houses. I feel like that's an interesting second sentence. Sentence three. They were not in the empty house at all. They were in Diggory's house and in the forbidden study. That's a good one. Sentence four. Don't be a fool. Sentence five. Diggory and his uncle were alone in the room. See, that's another one I almost picked. We did a good job of not picking the same sentences. Way to go. Uh-huh. Go we're, team. We're not that, uh, we're not that in sync. Uh, okay. I feel like, uh, you're going to be amused by my sentences. All right. So I also... Amuse me! I also chose five. Uh, so sentence one. It is a very important story because it shows how all the comings and goings between our world and the land of Narnia first began. I like to, I like to jump in early. All right. So what you're saying is that this isn't a story about Diggory and Polly. It's a story about Narnia. All right, go ahead. Sentence two. Sentence two. Is Mr. Ketterly really mad? Like it, like it. Sentence three. Their adventures began chiefly because it was one of the coldest and wettest summers there had been for years. Sentence four. Grown-ups are always thinking of uninteresting explanations. I almost picked that sentence, too. I actually, there's like three times in which Polly or her thoughts specifically reference grown-ups and how they think about things. And I almost just took the through line of the grown-up storyline. But sentence five is... She moved over to the tray. Mm. Okay, so you don't actually get to the important plot development of this story, which is Polly disappearing. Because I don't, well, if we're talking, if we're just jumping right into why we feel these sentences encapsulate the chapter, the chapter is not about Polly disappearing. The chapter is not. I agree. Mm. The chapter is about the two of them becoming friends and exploring and adventuring and mm. also about how young girls, uh, when they're flattered, are become stupid. It's also... Is that accurate? Dude, dude, did you read the chapter? Yeah. Yes, that's okay. what... Well, well, he said. If you really must go, I suppose you must. I can't expect two youngsters like you to find it much fun talking to an old buffer like me. He sighed and went on. You've no idea how lonely I sometimes end, but... No matter. Go to your dinner, but I must give you a present before you go. 
It's not every day that I see a little girl in my dingy old study, especially, if I may say so, such a very attractive young lady as yourself. Polly began to think he might not really be mad after all. Really? Really, you don't think that this chapter is about a young girl being flattered by an old man to and becoming stupid? Like, the next thing that Diggory says to her is, don't be a fool. That's why I picked that sentence, because it was specifically giving me the opportunity to launch into this rant that I had prepared. I, I'm going to take an aside to say that I feel like uh, Diggory's feelings on his uncle are very conflicted in this chapter. And that, that line struck me as odd. The don't be a fool line. Because earlier on in the chapter, we have this moment where Polly and Diggory first meet. And Diggory is talking about his family life and the people that live in his house and Mr. Ketterly. And he's like, oh yeah, he tries to tell me things, but my aunt won't let him. Mm-hmm. And there's they, almost a curiosity here about what they, he's doing. They also theorize in the same way where later when they start planning to go to the other houses and what could be happening in the in the empty house mm-hmm. uh, about how there could be people who come and go in the night with dark lanterns and that there could be, you know, things there that they don't want to say it could be haunted, but they're they're verbalizing these theories that are adventuresome. Mm-hmm. They do the same thing with Uncle Andrew, Mr. Ketterly. Uh-huh. They do the same thing with him, where when they talk about him being mad, the, uh, Polly says he could be hiding a crazy old wife up there uh-huh. in the attic and things like that. So they have this, this bonding moment of theorizing about what's going on with the crazy uncle mm-hmm. in the same way that they talk about the adventure of going to the empty house, which eventually leads them into the room with the crazy uncle. And so these two moments, I feel, kind of uh, bookend their interaction with the uncle in this chapter because they, they meet and they theorize about the uncle as this crazy old man who could also be this really cool adventure guy who might have been a pirate at some point in the past. And then they get into his study and interact with him because of their theories and daydreams about the empty house. Mm-hmm. That was a great stream of consciousness. Um, <laughs> but I feel like it, it's an interesting... This is a very short chapter. Let's throw that out there. This is like six to seven pages long. Extremely, extremely short chapter. And in that, like, there's very little space for character introductions and for any kind of character development. But I feel like already it makes Diggory a conflicted character because he's at the same time doing all this theorizing and being curious and wanting to know more. But then they finally get into the study and this room that he wants to be in theoretically. And suddenly he's just like, oh, no, we need to leave. He's the first one to make a like make a run for it. But he's also the, the, the one to say, hey, don't be a fool. Don't touch these rings on the table implying that you know there's this guy that he's really curious about and his his uncle that you know he still doesn't like but there's a curiosity there but implying that uh there's a lack of trust or a fear or something associated with him still we've learned so much about diggory because this chapter is introduced with him being this blubbery mess mm-hmm. and polly's like you've got a funny name and he's like well yours isn't any less funny and, like, they have this kind of 
snarky interaction and he just breaks down because he just needs someone to talk to. Mm -hmm. He is not afraid to cry in front of this complete stranger that he just met because it's the first person he can look in the eye and he can talk to. And so that that speaks to a kind of like fragility that Diggory has as a character. We've already introduced that. He starts going off about his dad being in India and him moving away from the house that he loves with his pony and his open spaces into London, which he calls this hole. And Polly's like, yes. And Polly's like, London isn't a hole. And he's just like blubbering mess, falling apart, not even listening to her like offense at his statement about London being like, my mother is dying and we're here because my my uncle and his wife are going to take care of her. And he is just completely, completely broken. Like he's this little boy facing the potential death of his mother without his father being removed from his home that he knows and loves and being brought into this new environment with this small house in this dirty city, this beastly hole that is London, according to him. And meeting Polly, the first person that he can interact with, and he just falls to pieces. And her response is to redirect his focus and be like, is Mr. Ketterly really mad? Mm -hmm. And they strike up a friendship on this topic of adventure that the two of them can use to distract Diggory from this upcoming potential trauma of his mom dying. And this is exactly what he needed was someone to come in and distract him. So Polly's very emotionally aware for her age. Is she or is she just not know what to do? Because she also is not emotionally aware enough to be like, yeah, you're a sneaky bastard trying to convince me to take something from you just so that I don't leave right away to the old man. Anyway, do you have... Continue. So as a person reading this for the first time and only having, like, the most passing familiarity with the with the series as a whole, I don't know. This was, it was hard to come up with, like, succinct thoughts on the first chapter because the, the writing style is kind of jarring because I haven't sat down and actually read any children's literature in a long time. And in, in one of our conversations about this chapter, Kristen mentioned that it, it, it seems... Like C.S. Lewis is trying really hard to write for children, and what? How did you put that? He's not comfortable doing it. <laughs> uh, uh. No, no. That's uh, what I said. Is that I feel like this chapter is written as a script to be read, rather than as a book that a child would read themselves alone. Mm -hmm. Um, like my, I mean, just structurally, when you look at the first sentence that I chose for plot wise, it is, it is a very long sentence. It is a complex sentence with, with a compound complex sentence as part of the second clause from a, from a grammar perspective on the breakdown on this one sentence alone, this is beyond the level of children's literature. Mm -hmm. This is not... A simple sentence. Yeah. This is a compound complex sentence with multiple things going on in it. And with that said, like 
This sentence alone exemplifies how this is not written for a child to read to themselves. Mm -hmm. It's stilted and it's difficult. Uh There's a C.S. Lewis quote that says something like, children's literature that is written solely for the enjoyment of children is poorly written books or something like that. Like I'm I'm butchering it completely. Mm -hmm. But it's basically making the point that if a book is written solely for the enjoyment of children and adults grown-ups can't enjoy it too, Uh then it's written poorly. A quote by C.S. Lewis. A children's story that can only be enjoyed by children is not a good children's story in the slightest. And so I feel like he's taken this book and written it, at least from chapter one, in a style that requires an adult reading it out loud to a child. Because in my experience of trying to read it, I tried to read this book for the first time when I was probably like 10, and I didn't get past the first chapter. Like I did not understand this concept of climbing through the attic in areas where there wasn't footing. Like, is that a thing that children are commonly doing because I didn't climb in the attic alone until I was in my 20s. Well, I mean, it, like, was, it was Victorian England. They didn't really have a lot of entertainment options. Okay, fair. <laughs> We're also talking about a book that was published in 1955. Mm-hmm. And as a book that was published in 1955, it is talking to children about their grandparents. And, like... In 1955, I don't think that children were climbing around in the attic so much. I mean, that said, my mom was born in 54, so I'm also interpreting this idea that my mom has never talked about being in an attic. Yeah. Well, it's it's an interesting idea that C.S. Lewis is writing this for the the enjoyment of children, uh, first and foremost. And he opens this by kind of explaining this time period and being like, here's historical context for a time period that he himself also did not experience. Yes. So he, he's very true. He he's writing about a thing that he doesn't have firsthand information about to other people who don't have firsthand information about. Yes. It. So he's writing mm-hmm. this in nineteen fifty five, mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. to children yes. about their grandparents' time, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. saying basically his parents. Mm-hmm would have experienced this kind of in that in that zone of time. Like, my grandparents were born in 1920. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, by the time that this book came out, they would have been barely old enough to have children capable of reading this. Yeah. So like, this isn't even, my dad isn't even the audience he's writing to directly. It's his older sister. So, like, I spent a lot of time trying to wrap my head around who is the audience for this book. Because this book is written as a children's book within a series of books that are easily read by children. Like, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you've read. I've read multiple times. It's a very easy to take on as a kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was probably 14 when I read it the first time, actually. But, like, I could have read this book younger than that and gotten it. Mm-hmm. But when we go into Magician's Nephew, this is now, like, this chapter alone, I'm like, I've read this chapter many times, and I just didn't understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand the concept of houses in a row all attached to each other. I didn't understand the concept of 
You haven't been to San Francisco yet, obviously. Yes, (laughs) true. I also did not understand this idea of like connected housing that was separate houses. I didn't understand this idea of a connected attic. I was like freaked out by that because I was like, how does that happen? This this privilege of uh, middle class America and not having grown up in apartment complexes. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough, but we live in an apartment complex now, and we don't have a shared attic. That we know of. There is no secret door into our attic Mm -hmm. that could be accessed by children pretending to be pirates. Mm -hmm. And carrying candles. Carrying candles. The candle did not go out. It specifically says that as they crawl through this crawl space, they have candles. They could burn down the house. This is irresponsible to model this behavior to children. So, like, this book needs to be read to a child by an adult saying, don't do these things. But it was a special occasion, so they each had a candle. Yes, they each had a candle. Which I thought was interesting. They took, well, Polly has a whole collection of them in her, she has a stash. Mm -hmm. She's got a candle stash. Yeah. She waxed her mustache too much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, 25 minutes into the podcast, I'd like to welcome our special guest, Sean Connery. Uh, <laughs> I have washed a mustache a little too much. <laughs> so anyway, obviously, uh, candles aren't like a rare commodity in this day and age, and, you know, even Polly has a collection of them. So what does that say when Polly's like, well, this is a special occasion and a special exploration into, you know, the seven and a half minute hallway? Uh, <laughs> literature reference so hey you get to have a candle like is she just stingy she also wouldn't let him read her story like she's okay being friends with this kid and exploring dingy attics but at the same time she's like nope my candles my story no i'm not i'm not cool sharing those i'm really confused what you're talking about with the candles did i miss something yeah there's a line that i I forget the way the exact line is but uh it says something like on such a special endeavor they each had a candle you're saying that Polly's being stingy with her candles, and I disagree with you. I feel like the fact that she has the good store of them and the idea that it was like the, the, the text says it was a special occasion, so they each took a candle. Polly had a good store of them. I don't feel like that's Polly's decision to be stingy. I feel like that's them planning ahead mm-hmm. to each take a candle. I, I don't... I. I disagree with you on your interpretation of that, but I do agree that Polly doesn't want to share her story, and I also think that that's perfectly valid. She doesn't have to. No, that's a, that's absolutely valid. I just think that's an interesting tidbit about the development of Polly's character. Right. She also doesn't have to share her candles, but she does. Um, like this is there's I feel like there's a contrast here between Polly not wanting to share her story. And when we are introduced to Diggory's character, the first thing he does is share his story. Yes, that's an interesting contrast between the two of them. We also have this idea of the story that they're creating for themselves that they share. We're going to go on this adventure to the empty house, and we're going to we're going to go on an adventure together. And we're going to create our own story, mm-hmm. but I won't share the story that I created alone. Right. And I think that that's an interesting take. And I agree with you that it's a comparison between the two of them where he's just blubbering out his story and she's just like, no, my story's in the attic and it's okay. Which I feel like is uh, kind of leads to the interesting turn 
where we have this established where maybe Polly is uh, more of a reserved, at least emotionally, character rather than Diggory, who just kind of throws everything out there. Until but, Uncle Andrew yeah, was just like, until you're Andrew. so pretty. And, and she's then, just like, well, this grown-up must not be that bad after all. Yeah. And then she stops being the reserved one and just goes right for those rings. <sighs> so I feel like that's an interesting turnabout. And it doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. Also, now we can get into this. This this is my other big rant. My, okay. my first big rant is that Polly's portrayed in this stupid way that really bothers me. My second one is talking about my perception because my previous experience reading this book was in junior high, maybe freshman year of high school Mm -hmm. age range. So I was somewhere between 11 and 14 reading this book for the first time. And as a kid, reading it for the first time, not understanding the attic, not understanding anything about a world that doesn't have vacuum cleaner sounds and not understanding that Sherlock Holmes wasn't real. I read this chapter so frustrated with both of the kids because I was so very much like anti unknown. I'm not an, I was not an adventurous kid and it wasn't unless I knew that someone else had been successful with something that I was willing to go try it. All of that said, I read this chapter as a kid and I was so very put off by these kids who were like going to go break into a house. Like the, 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 the time when one of them's like, we'll be taken for burglars. I was like, yeah, you will. You shouldn't do it. Don't do it. And then they end up in the study and I'm like, get out, get out, get out, get out of the study. You're, you're in somewhere where there should be like no people. And there's clear evidence of people. Get out. I don't care where, what building this is. Just get out. And then Uncle Andrew stands up and locks the door. And I'm like, run, run. And then the conversation happens where Uncle Andrew and, and Polly, she's like, we should go. It's dinner time. And I'm like, yeah, you should. You shouldn't have gotten this far to begin with because you're being stupid. And this is dangerous. What are you doing? I'm scared. And then, then you have Uncle Andrew being this creep, being like, oh, well, I should give you a gift because you're so pretty. And he says, previously he said, I wanted two children, which is (laughs) creepy. It's like, like, okay, so I'm reading this as a kid, like, this guy is evil, he mm-hmm. is the, the, the witch in Hansel and Gretel who's is trying to... the witch to... in the wardrobe? No! <laughs> he, is, he is the bad guy from Hansel and Gretel. He's going to cook them into a pie. Mm-hmm. And he's like buttering them up and paladining it. And he's just like... And, and Diggory is just like freaked out. Like, I'm Diggory as a kid reading this. Like, panic... Don't be a fool is very much like what I was screaming at the book as a kid. Like, don't be a fool. Like, get out. Don't touch anything. Stop talking to him. Scream. Do something to get out. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm like, why aren't you just screaming already? Like, why aren't you just shouting? 
coming back to it and reading it as an adult, I'm like, yeah, I can totally see how an adult would write this about this is how an adult would perceive child behavior. Reading it as a kid, I was like, this is not how humans act. This is not how people act. And then reading it as an adult, I'm like, yeah, that's how people act. And that's how kids act. And that makes it, and it's disconcerting to me, this disconnect that I feel from me as a child, far enough removed now where I'm just like, yeah, no, that's fine. But it's not because that's not what I experienced as a kid. Reading this chapter was terrifying to me as a kid. Just half the reason I read that chapter like five times and never read the book until I was older. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that rant is focused so much on like my own discomfort with my own changing perspective mm-hmm. that it, than it is about the actual like writing of the book. I feel like we're going to have uh, many such moments through the course of this book series. Yes, but I need you to have a rant. Uh, I'm not sure I have a rant for this chapter. I mean, I, I've, I've made some points, I feel like, about the inconsistencies of the characters, or at least what it seems like. Again, it's hard to tell a lot from a six-page first chapter from a prequel book that was written years after the series started. It's like, to make a Star Wars comparison, uh, the first of many such, um, I'm, I'm sure to do at some point, because yeah. that's the only literature I understand. It's like taking the, the, the scene aboard the Trade Federation ship from the first five minutes of The Phantom Menace and being like, well, Obi-Wan's an inconsistent character. So Yes, but, but that said, the first five minutes of The Phantom Menace are a clear indicator of the level of quality that you can expect from that film. Well, I, if and it, the if, level of inconsistency if, and universe-breaking and just general badness of that film, like, the first five minutes epitomizes that. They've gone up that ventilation shaft. What's wrong with your face? Anyway, uh, not a literature reference. You can cut that part out. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I have a rant, like, other than, like... You don't have to have a rant. Like, it's not a segment in the I, podcast I, I, to I have Chris's have rant. rant. Yeah, uh, I agree with you, like, creepy pedophile Uncle Andrew. Uh, I wanted two children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and and then the line about him being like, oh, your aunt can't get to you now. Yeah. <laughs> she that's... can't stop me. Yeah. Yeah, no. Mm-hmm. That's horrifying. Yep. So... And, and then he's like, no, you can't take the green rings, but I'll give you a yellow ring. And as soon as she touches it, she just, poof, she's gone. And it doesn't, it doesn't, just like end with she disappeared it ends with diggory and his uncle were alone in the room and that's even creepier Mm -hmm. like that that's the moment where it's like oh crap Mm -hmm. because it's not just like polly disappeared it's like the person who's like i'm game if you are who's relying on Diggory to actually, like, make this stuff happen. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it. I'm game if you are. Oh, okay, let's do it then. Like, it's been turned around to be, like, Diggory's idea because Polly's just like, I'm game if you are. Mm-hmm. When it's, like, all her idea to begin with. Anyway, manipulation aside, 
she is the one who just disappears. And it's like, Diggory and his uncle were alone in the room. It's like, Polly is 90% of the reason that he ended up in this room. But that and, like, their inability to do math. Stay in school, kids. Learn how to do math so you don't end up in Uncle Andrew's study. Like, oh, man, sorry. See, I thought the house was just bigger on the inside. If you keep making these references, we're going to have to do a House of Leaves podcast. Chronically, House of Leaves. So, so anyway. Uh, and that one's going to be very difficult. It would be very difficult. I think the last line of the chapter is interesting. About them being alone in the room. And I feel like it's also interesting. I keep using the word interesting a lot. I need to like have a thought. Well, I mean, I as Polly a, says, grown-ups have such in- uninteresting ideas. I need to have a thesaurus. That's the word I was looking for next to me while I'm uh, talking about what actually happens here. But at some point, like in the last couple paragraphs, Uncle Andrew says something about guinea pigs. Uh huh. Yeah, he, uh, he sent he sent the guinea pigs through, but they can't tell him about their experience. Yeah, he's like, I can't. T- the guinea pigs can't tell them, me about their experience, and I also can't tell them how to get back. Uh, spoiler alert for the rest of the series. I'm assuming that she puts the ring on and goes to Narnia. Yes. Okay. okay. I mean, crazy. That's considering like, that the first, the the second sentence says that this is an introduction yeah. to all of the comings and goings of Narnia. It's a safe assumption. Yeah. That she didn't, you know, pretty like, safe. Pretty teleport safe into the empty house, which is what I thought the first time <laughs> that I read this chapter as a child. I thought that she was being teleported into the empty house. Mm-hmm. That when she put on the ring, she disappeared into the empty house. Like this MacGuffin of the empty house was such a critical like hang up. In my plot development as, like, an under... Like, I struggled. Like, I just... My reading comprehension scores as a child were not good. And, like, this is just... Reflecting on it is, like... Yeah, I was a little dumb. But, like, also, like... You got better. I I took things too seriously when it came to, like, foreshadowing. I was like, no. You still do that sometimes, let's be honest. Valid. Um, Anyway, my point being... According to you. That Uncle Andrew's, like, guinea pigs, I can't tell them how to get back. And at the same time, he he turns to Polly and says, you know, go take one of these rings without any explanation and no explanation of how to get back. Yeah. And Diggory's got it figured out. Diggory's just like, Mm -hmm. don't be a fool. Like, he knows. As soon as the offer is made, he knows that this is... Which, okay, here's my here's my rant. I've finally gotten there. Uh, Uncle Andrew is a terrible scientist. He is also, <laughs> and as far as character development, he is a scaredy cat. Mm-hmm. Like, he is unwilling to go himself. Apparently. He's not willing to go. But but he's... He, he knows how to get back. He is bad at science. Uh, he has not set up a control group. He is abusive to guinea pigs, which I'm sure were much harder to come by in Victorian England than they are today. Uh, he's he's obviously you know spared no expense in this because uh, you know God knows what the price of a guinea pig and the street value in you know Victorian London was. But at the same time, he he has no way of recording the data 
because he just sent off his only conscious test subject to, you know, without any plan or without any... Uh, without telling her how to get back. Primer on how to get back. Uh, so how, what, is he, what is he gleaning from this? Now, I don't know what happens in the second chapter. This is my first time through. What I think happens is that somehow he's going to pressure Diggory and also going and being like, hey, take a green ring because you're a boy and I gendered these. And he's going to be like, oh, and by the way, when you find Polly, here's the magic tree you need to go find and it'll climb the branches and it'll take you back after you click the red slippers. Uh, that's <laughs> something like that's going to happen where Diggory's not going to be very far behind. But that's based on absolutely nothing. Eh. No, the green rings bring them back. And well, he's going to send Diggory with two green rings. Okay. So that, and he's going to give Diggory that information to be Polly's rescuer and to bring him, bring her back. Because he can't tell the guinea pigs how to come back. Yeah. He can't tell them to put on the green rings. Can guinea pigs wear rings? I don't know. They, they can clearly touch yellow rings and get transported away. Mm-hmm. But more on guinea pigs later. Promises, promises. Anyway, uh, so how, how are we wrapping this up? Do we have some final thoughts on... Well, I mean, you really want to do some kind of chapter rating system. So tell me how you would rate this chapter on, you know, a scale from one to five yellow rings. Or <laughs> no, no, let's do guinea pigs. Let's... One, from a scale from one to five guinea pigs. Our rating system is going to change with every single chapter. Um, if, yeah, you want to rate uh, chapters. One to five guinea pigs. I would say it does what it says it does on the ten. And very briefly introduces us to the... Well, I, I wouldn't say it even introduces us to the concept of Narnia, because Narnia isn't a concept in the book yet. Yes, it however, however this book is intended to be read as a book after people know about Narnia, because the second sentence says, this is explaining the comings and goings of Narnia, like how this came about. Yes. Which is why I say that this book is not to be the first book read, but Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is. because, And so I'm fine starting with The Magician's Nephew, because you and I both have a basic knowledge. You've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We've both recently watched the film. Like, we have some kind of basic knowledge basis of what Narnia is in order to jump off into this book. Yes. But I wouldn't... I, I agree with you. It absolutely does not introduce the concept of Narnia or or Well, I didn't expect it six pages either. True. True. Uh, that would be jumping the gun a little bit. And there is a surprising amount of character development that's taken place within these six pages. Uh, it's definitely better than I could do. Uh, but, but yeah, overall, let's say three and a half guinea pigs. Three and a half guinea pigs. I'd say three and a half guinea pigs. That's yeah. a solid C. It is a solid C. I'd say things that could have done better. Uh being more of a book and less of a transcribed radio play, as you said, it, it sounds like. Explaining what a coiner is. Uh, <laughs> did you look that up? I did not look it up. We still don't know. Kristen is going in and uh, putting on a purple ring, which takes her to dictionary land. 
so I find myself in dictionary land, searching for coiner. Noun. One. Historical. Person who coins money. In particular, a maker of counterfeit coins. Two. A person who invents or devises a new word, sense, or phrase. Ooh, purple ring to dictionary land? Yeah. Is it like right next to the magenta ring for thesaurus land? Yeah. Those are, I mean, those are both really boring lands because they're just words, I guess. Words are not boring. <laughs> well, words are the only way that you have structured thought. Sure, we can we can debate philosophy. I'm pretty sure they were talking about the counterfeiting one. Yes, because they also talk about him being a pirate, and they're like he could be a coiner, which is a forger. That that oh. would that would be a great like absurdist bent to this chapter, where they'd be like, you know, I bet in that third house that's empty, there's some guy in there who's just coming up with phrases. <laughs> he says he is coming up with the hot new slang of 1890. That hot new slang. <laughs> and yeah. also pirates. Yes. Because if there's one thing the pirates like, it's row houses in late Victorian London. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're on board with that. They're still really upset about losing their pony, though. I'm sorry. That was Diggory. Diggory is not a pirate. Or is he? Yes. Are you spoiling that Diggory is a pirate? Am I spoiling <laughs> anything? I've spoiled lots of things, and you still don't even know them yet. we got to come back to all of the spoilers I gave away in this chapter. Talk about foreshadowing. All of these things I don't actually remember about this book. All right, so you've given it your rating. 3.5 guinea pigs. That's cool. Though, though I feel like I need to adjust that because the mental image of 0.5 of a guinea pig is kind of disturbing That's to me. That's so disturbing. <laughs> you could, like, be, like, five, like, you could do it, like, based on color pattern. You could okay. do, like, three dark brown solid guinea pigs and one that's half dark brown and half white that's great thank you you. is that mental image better for you yes it is okay but go on Uh, i'm not going to give it a rating because i don't believe in this okay i'm I'm going to be the only one that rates literature on a sliding scale of douchebaggery Uh, (laughs) so i'll just be that guy be that guy Mm -hmm. like i'm talking about some sort of chain restaurant or something in summary. In summary. This. We forgot to do our reordering thing. We forgot. I, so this chapter starts in London, introduces Polly Plummer, an alliterative name if ever I heard one. She could be a superhero. We don't know yet. Then we are introduced to a boy. We are introduced to the names of Mr. and Miss Ketterly. And we are finally introduced to the boy as Diggory. And then we are introduced to the idea of the father in India, the mother who's ill, and that Mr. and Miss Ketterly are looking after mother. And she's dying. Uh, the setting is in London. We spend a lot of time outside in the garden, a lot of time in the attic crawl space, and a little time in uh, Uncle Andrew or Mr. Ketterly's uh, study, the forbidden study. We are going to take our deconstructed sentences that we started with Mm -hmm. 
and we are going to reorder them in order to come up with a new story. And we may or may not flex this a little bit and use new sentences to tell a different story out of the chapter. Yeah. But for the time being, we are going to talk about using just the sentences we've already chosen. Mm -hmm. So since final thought. So for your final thoughts, yes. I went first earlier. You get to go first for your final thoughts okay. on how this story could be told differently or a different story entirely. So I did not uh, pick my sentences with uh, the idea of doing this because I forgot this is a segment we were trying to do at uh, the beginning of this show. Uh, but here's, here's what I got. Grown-ups are always thinking of un uninteresting explanations. Their adventures began chiefly because it was one of the wettest and coldest summers there had been for years. It is a very important story because it should, shows how all the comings and goings between our world and the land of Narnia first began. She moved over to the tray. Is Mr. Ketterly really mad? Interesting. So you've taken this idea of Narnia and the tray and connected them with Mr. Ketterly's sin. Yes. Which I feel is actually more representative of what's actually happening. I find that the, the way that you emphasize that point is actually more reflective of the true undertone of the story of what's happening. Because we're we're we are constantly being asked to question Mr. Ketterly's sanity in this first chapter. Yeah. It is is he really mad? Is a, is a sentence at the forethought, and even when we finally do interact with him directly, he's doing things that no grown up should be doing. He's locking them in, and he's you know talking about guinea pigs not being able to come back, like. How odd of an idea is that to just be like, yeah, but I can't convince the guinea, like I can't give the guinea pigs the information they need to come back. Right. Like you're talking about nothing. You're talking about how excited you are that two kids wandered into your study and you locked them in. Yeah. And like, yes, his, his sanity is this distinct through line of this chapter of like, is he sane? Is he not? Is he allowed to talk? Is he not? Are they allowed to be in the study or are they not? Right. And are they welcome in the study? Are they not welcome in the study? Are they going to be safe in the study? Are they not? Should they touch the rings? Don't be a fool. Interesting. Okay. So your, your reordered chapter. All right. My reordered chapter. Here's my sentences reordered. Don't be a fool. That was how Polly and Diggory got to know one another. And as it was just the beginning of the summer holidays, and neither of them was going to the sea that year, they met nearly every day. They were not in the empty house at all. They were in Diggory's house and in the forbidden study. Diggory and his uncle were alone in the room. We could get into other interesting uh so i feel like the the first couple of lines you put at the forefront here transform the chapter from being this thing about adventure and discovery which i feel like are, are my core themes 
into a chapter about a relationship and a, uh, a forming relationship and the dynamics therein, and then you take the turn where you have this tragic loss in it. Yes. Where you talk about the formation of the, the relationship, and then suddenly they were alone. So I, I feel like you've made it a, a, kind of put a darker tone to it. Yes, I agree with you there. I also mm. think that it kind of puts in this element of Diggory and his uncle Andrew having a closer connection because okay. um, they, they were alone in the room. They could get into other houses. And we could get into other houses. Is is taking Polly's words, mm-hmm. I believe they're Polly's words, and assigning them to one of the other two based on the fact that she's not there anymore. Because mm-hmm. they're alone in the room. You could also you could also take that in a very sinister direction. True. I could also take it into this direction of, as you said, loss, shared loss between Diggory and his uncle of Polly. Mm-hmm. Also, taking it back into the chapter as it's written, this potential loss of Diggory's mother. I mean, you have this in-depth, ingrained fear within Diggory that his mother's going to die at any moment. This is how he reaches out and connects with Polly. And then he loses Polly in the same chapter. She's just gone. Mm -hmm. Which if you think that uncle Andrew is manipulating him into going after her and he does, Mm -hmm. you would be missing out on that element of his character where he, needs to get her back because he needs to know that the people that he loses can be saved. Mm-hmm. I'm going too far into the next chapter already, but mm-hmm. that said. So I guess I would, I would end here and say that in, in this discussion and talking about our deconstructed versions of the chapter, my kind of core, the sentence I believe is kind of a core statement about what the chapter is. Uh, I would take it back a few pages and not have it at the end at all and say the core sentence is we could get into other houses. Mm. Yeah. I think so that I feel that's, like that's, that's heavy foreshadowing. Yeah, I, th- I agree. <clears throat> I think, I think the chapter <clears throat> title of the wrong door, mm-hmm. I think that that could have so much, structural significance if you think about the relationship between the two of them that's built over a wall mm-hmm. you have taken away this element of the door as part of their relationship where you know a lot of you know their friendship develops over this wall in the backyard that's how they meet that's how they discover each other exists mm-hmm. and then they start exploring doors and it's a very kind of different take where they start with the wall and move to the door mm-hmm. versus starting with a door or a window or an interaction without some kind of barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting very into the symbol yeah. symbolism. Yeah. But symbolically, there's this interesting relationship element of the wall between them and yet the shared attic space, mm-hmm. this connection that can come between their two houses through the attic, mm-hmm. 
that takes some effort on their behalf to connect through. Yeah. But when they're outside of the attic and the hiding place that the attic becomes for them, mm-hmm. they can easily be separated by this wall. And they're not separated emotionally. They still connect. They still interact. But physically, they can be separated in a way that the attic as a representative space and, and symbolism is often representative of the mind. Mm-hmm. They are... They are um, intellectually and imaginatively connected. And there's also this unknown empty house of possibility that drives them forward mm-hmm. and they end up getting into the unknown locked space, forbidden space of Diggory's attic, of Diggory's mind and emotions and mentality and fear of loss. And he loses someone in that attic mm-hmm. and Symbolically, it's a very interesting breakdown of the chapter. I don't have any idea how I got onto that little train choo-choo of thought that just happened there, but I liked it. I liked where it was going. Or maybe the curtains were just blue. The issue with that statement is that you are not allowing for meaning-making. Okay. You're not allowing me to bring meaning to the text, and you're I not allowing the text to bring meaning to me. I was trying to be pithy and clever. Yes, pithy <laughs> and clever, but like you're also not going to contribute to discussions about symbolism outside saying that they're invalid. No, I'm absolutely all for symbolism. I think for the first six pages of a prequel children's novel, you might be reading too much into it. But. I'm just telling you that symbolically, the house can also represent a relationship. Mm-hmm. Zampano. Third reference. First one for me. Uh-huh. All right, so Diggory and Polly here, signing off. Don't be a fool. And if you'd like to be more involved, you can follow us at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You could also follow us at ChronicallyPod on Twitter, or you can email us with questions, queries, comments, or anything else you might want to add at chronicallypodcast at gmail.com. We didn't talk about our tea with Trumness. Tumness? Tumness. Tumness! This is the one book you've read and you don't know Tumness! I think there's an R in there. I keep wanting to put R's into things. Tumness! Well, next time we'll talk about tea with Mr. Tumness. No! That is in (laughs) The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe! Well, it's a breakout segment. It doesn't have to be chronologically accurate. Okay, so it's a breakout segment that we have tea with Mr. Tumness. Yes. Where we just drink our tea, talk about our tea. It sounds stupid. How, how is, <laughs> it's a bad idea. How was your cup of tea? <laughs> so my tea tonight was a chai rooibos. Uh, it was an herbal tea, nice little spicy guy. Uh, had a lot going on in there.